let's just turn there. If you're not there already, turn to 1 Peter. And I'm just going to read verses 1 through 2, which is Peter's greeting to a group of people. As you're turning there, a couple things. It starts with Peter, an apostle. An apostle is, best way to think of it, um, and I'm not speaking of like an apostolic gift, which we might get to at another point, but an apostle, which Jesus commissioned with a special task in the first century, the authority to bear authentic testimony and witness to the life and significance of Jesus Christ. Peter was one of those, and he's writing to a group of people scattered around an area called Asia Minor, which is now uh, the space around modern-day Turkey. Um, And it makes up about the same square footage, maybe a little smaller than than the state of California. And so that's who Peter is writing to from Rome. And this is how he starts off. And I'll just read the text. This is what he says. He says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. End right there. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, that's a great way to start. Just every person of the Trinity, just in two verses. I love it already. And God, even as these two verses are surrounded by the Godhead, we pray today that we as a church would also be surrounded by the love of the Father, by the power of the Holy Spirit, and by the forgiving, cleansing blood of Jesus Christ. And we ask that you, by your word, would uh, pierce through the veneer and the surface that we sometimes, maybe even unintentionally, set up to hide ourselves from you. We pray that you would tear those, those walls down by your spirit. And as King David prayed, that you would look inward, look inside us and examine our hearts, see if there's any grievous, uh, grievous or wayward way in us and set us on the path of everlasting life. We pray that you would make us healthy. We pray that you would make us whole. We pray that you would set us on that trajectory to become Christ-like and more like you and not for the end goal of just feeling better about ourselves but sharing the worth and value and beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ with our neighbors, with our city, with our families, with each other, and with the world. We pray that what you started to do 2,000 years ago in the resurrection would have ongoing implications for our lives right now. And Lord, by your spirit, would you show us how our faith is so integrate, so, not even gonna use that word because it's not coming out right. (laughs) We just pray that you would show us how our faith is so tied and connected to our Monday through Saturday. We don't, we don't want our, our love for you to be divorced from the rest of our life. Show us how it all fits together and start that journey right now. In Jesus' name we pray, amen, amen. Something you are gonna grow familiar with in the next 20 weeks going through First Peter is tension. The word tension. The idea, tension, the feeling, 
tension. You know what tension is. It's when two things feel like they are being pulled in opposite directions, and as a result of that, there is a, there is a stress involved. Tension is really uncomfortable when you're going through it. But it is also simultaneously engaging. Think of any time you've ever tied a rope around something to secure it, whether it's rock climbing or putting on a belt. There's a certain amount of tension that you have to place in that thing in order to engage it. But it's not just with physical things like ropes or belts or hooks or any of that stuff, but even in storylines and narratives. Think of your favorite movie, your favorite television sitcom. And I'm willing to bet that there is a healthy dose of tension and conflict involved in that show or movie that you really love. There's always something wrong. There's always a tension being just interwoven throughout the show that's keeping you on the edge of your seat. And it's uncomfortable, right? Yet it's also simultaneously engaging. If there was no tension, it would be boring. You wouldn't want to watch it. Likewise, what we're going to find out for the next 20 weeks is there's a tension to the Christian life. It's uncomfortable. It never goes away. But it is simultaneously engaging. If you understand, as Peter will endeavor by the Spirit to help us understand, to understand the beauty of the tension and also how to navigate the tension, you will grow deeper in Jesus Christ. And you will be a force to be reckoned with in the spiritual realm and even in the physical, social realm of of Santa Barbara. You will grow in Christ like you've never grown before, and you will have an impact on your spheres of influence if you learn to navigate the tension and not run from it. First Peter is all about how to do that. And it, if you're wondering, I don't see tension anywhere in the book of First Peter. It is all wrapped up in a single word. That word pops up twice in the book, and it pops up right here in our text. Do you know what the word is? Exile. Exile. Everything tense and uncomfortable and beautiful and engaging about the Christian life and the letter to, uh, uh, from Peter to these exiles is wrapped up in their identity as such. The word that Peter used for, uh, uses for exiles refers to what you might think of it since the term is used uh, fairly frequently right now, a person residing temporarily in a foreign place. You've heard it on the news, refugees, exiles, it is the same exact thing, same concept. A person who lives in a certain area but feels foreign, doesn't feel like they belong. Now, before we get into this, I've got to give you a little backstory on why Peter is calling these people exiles. little history lesson. If you want to know the relevance of 1 Peter to your life, you need a little bit of a backstory behind it. And it all has to do with Roman colonization. This idea that you, uh, uh, you know what colonizing means. It's sending a group of settlers somewhere else 
to establish political control over that area. Romans loved to do this, and they did it frequently. Emperors often colonized cities far away for the glory and power of Rome. And it was very common, very uh, unique to Rome to do it in a particular way. They loved to populate cities with people from the Roman capital who had no citizenship. This was strategic. It ended up doing two things that you're going to want to understand. One, it helped to assimilate that new town to Roman culture. Because if you sent someone from Rome to another, uh, another town, someone who loved Rome, someone who was enculturated in Rome, who was ingrained in society and culture, they would bring an element of that to the new town, right? Rome was all about that. We want to create, we want to expand the borders of our empire. But because they weren't Roman citizens, there was also an incentive for them to be loyal. Roman citizenship was the prized possession of the world at that time. If you were a Roman citizen, you had access to a lot of privilege and power. So by sending people out of Rome to another city who had the culture, they would assimilate those cities to Rome, but because they weren't citizenships, Rome knew that they could secure their loyalty. They will do anything that they can to remain loyal because they want to be citizens. Rome did this frequently. And these expulsions happened all the time. And the key feature of these people who were expelled from Rome to other uh, cities to colonize them had one thing in common. They didn't belong anywhere. They didn't belong to Rome, obviously. They got kicked out. They didn't really belong to this city that they were colonizing either. They had nowhere to call home for themselves, leaving them feeling isolated, perhaps even used, certainly disenfranchised. Now, the most famous expulsion happened during the reign of a guy named Emperor Claudius, who was known for doing this all the time. In fact, a secular historian, Suetonius, a Roman historian, tells us that since the Jews constantly made disturbances at the instigation of Crestus, he, Claudius, expelled them from Rome. Crestus referring to a guy that you all know, Christ. Secular Roman historian is writing in the first few centuries, there was a time where Claudius kept expelling Jews because they kept making disturbances because of this guy that they were following named Christ or Crestus. This happened around 49 AD, which happens to fit very well with a text in Acts chapter 18, verse 2, when Paul said, or when it was said of Paul that he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, heard that name before? It was one of the cities that Peter was talking about. Found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. Saying, so, so what? What's the big deal? It's possible right now because if you want to know why this book is relevant to you, you've got to understand who it was written to and why it mattered for them. And it seems, it's possible that the recipients, those who are listening to this letter by Peter in the first century, are inhabitants of that Roman colony. They're not citizens of Rome's power, but they're being used to further its power. They're being moved from one area to another, and yet they don't belong anywhere. They are disenfranchised. They're non-belonging, outcasts, refugees, exiles of society. They don't belong anywhere and they have no home. 
The salient point, however, and what Peter is going to explain for the next five chapters, is that they are disenfranchised outcasts because of their faith in Jesus Christ. That's why they're exiles. Say, well, why the history lesson? Because they're exiles in the literal sense of the word, right? They actually have no home. But they are so because they have chosen to follow Jesus Christ. That's why Peter would call them the elect of the dispersion. He's using language that used to be about Israel. Israel being uh, exiled among the Gentile nations, he's now applying it to Christians who are following Christ. When Peter says exiles, he's referring to Christians who are socially outcast for their faith. And he's teaching us, following Jesus is going to have some social implications for your life. It is going to create some ripples in your relationships, in your spheres of influence. I say all of this and I include a history lesson so that you know from the get-go that this book is not just to a bunch of refugees in Asia Minor. It's to a bunch of Christians in Santa Barbara. For you to identify yourself with these people because you are of the same family. Now, we have to be careful because there are ways in which our situation is certainly not the same as first century Christians, right? We're not suffering in the same way. We're not being killed for our faith. We're not being imprisoned. Although, that is happening all over the world. It's not happening to us. So we should approach this with a a sense of humility and a view of the grandness of the church bigger than America. Hope you know that, right? A lot of of God's movement all over the world. But we are a part of that story. And this does have something to say to us. That's how it's maybe dissimilar. We're not dying for our faith. We're not suffering in the same way. We're not being imprisoned. But here's how it is the same. We do live in this city, but the Bible tells us that we do not belong to this city. Some of you might be thinking to yourself, well, I do. I'm a local, bro. (laughs) You're not. You don't belong. (laughs) I grew up here. I was born here. I went through the school system. I went to school in this building. I'm a local. I belong. I'm a Santa Barbara native. I'm not saying that you're not. I'm just saying that your belonging is not as true of you as another type of belonging. I'm saying, yeah, you belong here. You live here. This is your city. You're a citizen here. But you have a citizenship that surpasses this one. There is something that is more true about where you belong than simply that you belong to Santa Barbara on a particular street in a certain neighborhood. Paul said this beautifully in Philippians chapter 3, verse 20 through 21. He said, our citizenship is in heaven. The thing that is fascinating because Paul was actually a Roman citizen. See this in the book of Acts. He had the power. He had the authority. He used it several times when he got into trouble. He had all of the privilege that came with Roman citizenship, and yet he never gloats in it, except, you know, that one time when he was in prison. He actually says here, our citizenship is in heaven. He's speaking to a group of Philippian people who love Roman citizenship, saying, hey, 
Don't forget where you truly belong. Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 18, he would take it a little bit deeper, saying, through him, through Christ, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens. You are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Brothers and sisters, you are fellow citizens with the saints that have gone back all the way since the resurrection, with these who are in uh, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. We are the same family. We have a citizenship that is deeper than our American citizenship or a French citizenship or a Canadian citizenship or a Mexican citizenship. We have a a belonging, an identity that is much deeper and more true of us than that. We are, in every sense of the word, exiles because we live here, but we do not belong here. But we're also supposed to be here. If you live in Santa Barbara, you're supposed to be here by the sovereign will of God. Some of you might be visiting from other areas. You're supposed to be there. But you don't belong there. There's a tension that creates a tension. Wherever you happen to be, God has you there for a reason, and yet you do not belong. That's why Jesus would say, I believe it was in the Gospel of John, Father, as you have sent me, so I am sending them. You are, wherever you happen to live, you have a mission. You have this sense, if I can put it this way, you have this sense of sentness. We always think, perhaps, of international missions and and other types of mission as a place where you are sent to do ministry. But even if you're not sent to, you know, Haiti or Thailand or uh, Ethiopia or China or whatever, you are sent wherever you happen to be. If you are a native of Santa Barbara and you live here, you are sent to Santa Barbara. You have an identity. You are supposed to be here for a reason until God removes you for whatever reason. And then you'll be sent somewhere else for a reason. You never stop being sent. That is part of your identity as a a Christian, as a follower of Christ. Wherever you are, you are there by holy ambition. And yet you're also in exile. You're sent there, but you do not belong there. And those two things will forever create a tension in your heart and in your spirit. The question that faces us as believers is how do we handle that tension? When our heart longs to be with Christ, we long to be in God's kingdom, in his heaven, and yet we're here. There is this tension. How do we resolve it? And two of the most common ways that believers, Christians, resolve it, the easiest ways and the worst ways, one is by something we could call nominalism which simply means name only. Christian nominalism. I am a Christian by name only. Usually you are something simply for the name because that name or title gives you some social benefit. Now this would never have been a problem in Peter's day because there was no social benefit, only eternal benefit. Uh, In the 30s, 40s, and 50s, 1930s, 40s, and 50s, there was tremendous social benefit. From the 60s and onward, that social benefit is starting to deplete. And right now, there's less than there used to be. But there still might be a little bit. You might still label yourself a Christian to be included in certain groups, even though it might just be church groups. 
There might be a little incentive to be a Christian. Maybe it gives you a, a sense of moralism or achievement. Maybe it makes you feel spiritual. Whatever it is, if you are a Christian nominalist, you are Christian in name only, you're just doing it for what it is able to give you socially. But when the tension comes, what's going to happen? There's a, a second way, and that's a, you're, you have more of a privatized religion. You say things like, I'm spiritual, but I keep it private. I don't really, you know, share it with other people. I don't talk about it. It's just kind of a thing between me and the Lord. Uh, if you love some of the positive things that you see in Scripture and it really enriches your faith, but when it contradicts your way of life or it contradicts things around you, you kind of leave that stuff off to the side, this might be you. This is a privatized endeavor. This is just something to make me feel good, to help me in my life, but when I, I don't let it creep off into my social life. I don't let it creep into some of my relationships or the things that I, I really cherish. So you might be someone that says, I'm a Christian in name only. You might not say it, but you, you live this way. Or I just like to keep it to myself, and when it gets really scary, I just kind of dumb it down. The problem with both of those is that's a watered-down version of what it means to be in Christ. And there is access for you to so much more than what you're living. You can go your entire way living one of these two. And perhaps some of you have. And here's the dangerous thing about living in Santa Barbara. You can spend years living a watered-down version of Christianity because you don't suffer. You know what suffering does? Suffering is the crux that exposes our deepest allegiances. This is what we talked about on Easter Sunday. Some of you, your life fell apart and it's forcing you to choose. It's forcing you to look inward and say, I can't, I can't actually keep my life together. While others of you, maybe, you know, 20, fresh, you know, 18 freshmen in college, you're living the high life, never suffered a day in your life, and you're like, I got it all together. Why do you think that is? Why do, why do you think that you think that way? Because you have not suffered yet. Suffering brings out your deepest allegiances. And that is why suffering, the topic of suffering, is all over 1 Peter. It's in every single chapter. We're going to have five sermons dedicated to what suffering does to the believer and how God uses it. But it is the crux. You can go your whole life, especially in Santa Barbara, living a watered-down version of Christianity until suffering forces you to look deeper. For the people that Peter is talking to, suffering forced them to choose between giving up on Jesus and persevering with Jesus. For you, suffering will peel, uh, peel back the veneer of fake Christianity, of religiosity, of nominalism, of privatized spirituality, all of that nonsense that cannot change your heart. And it will force you to choose if it is actually Jesus Christ himself that you want. Jesus made some crazy and outlandish claims, right? Oh, he promised you the world, but he asked for the world in return. Literally. If anyone desires to be my disciple, 
needs to pick up his cross and follow me, to deny himself. You think that you, 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 can, you find life by finding your own life? It's actually by losing your life for my sake. Says things like that. Suffering has the tendency to expose if it's actually Jesus that we want or the surface benefits that sometimes come with following him. To those in this building that do not love Jesus in that way, you like religion, you like maybe the emotional feeling, maybe you like the personal interaction until it goes sour, or any of the number of things, but you, if you were honest with yourself, you would say, I, I don't think I love Jesus in that way. I certainly don't love Jesus enough to give up everything in order to follow him. I want to say that I'm glad you're here, and it's okay to be in that spot. And you should be open and honest with the Lord about those things, and pray, Lord, If you truly are who you say you are, and you're as good as you say that you are, then show me what I'm missing. Show me you. Show me who you are in a changing, a soul-changing way. But I've also got to be honest with you. Until you see Christ in that way, the series is not going to make sense to you. Because every week, week in and week out for the next 20 weeks, I'm going to challenge your sense of independence. I'm going to challenge your deepest desire to to live your life for yourself, to think that you can live your life by yourself. I'm going to challenge it with the gospel of Jesus Christ, and it's not going to make sense to you until the gospel pierces your heart. But if you keep coming, that may happen. For those of you that find, yeah, I do love Jesus, you say with, with uh, Peter later in verse 8, I love what he says. He says, even though you do not see him, you believe in him. Even though you have not seen him, you love him with joy inexpressible and full of glory. To those of you that can resonate with that, what this letter is going to do is comfort and sustain you in the tension. It's going to give you joy. It's going to give you purpose. No longer will you see suffering as this thing that brings you down so much as gives you an opportunity to grow closer to Christ and to persevere. It will also realign all of your values to be in line with the kingdom of God. And I warn you too, Christian, some of it may surprise you. But if you're experiencing tension right now, you're like, I love Jesus and I want to follow him, but I'm starting to notice that it's, it's, you know, challenging certain values that I had and certain things that I love and certain things that I'm doing. Good. You're in the right spot. And what this letter is going to do is show you the beauty and the cost in following Christ. How's it going to do that? Peter starts to do that right here. He says, I know you're in attention. I know you're experiencing conflict. I know you're trying to follow Christ, and sometimes it's hard, maybe even confusing, but let's start right here. And he immediately goes into explaining how you got saved in the first place, what that entails. And he gives us three things. First of all, he says, you're saved because you were chosen by God. He actually says, you were uh, uh, 
elect exiles according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Foreknowledge is simply another word that Paul and Peter like to use to refer to God preordaining, working in his sovereignty behind the scenes throughout all of history to, uh, to bring things to where they are. It means that believers are elect because God the Father has set his covenantal love and affection upon them. Romans 8, uh, verse 29, Paul said, For those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Before the age, uh, before time began, he knew you were going to be born, and he was pursuing you before you even existed. This is important for you to understand because it was before you had an opportunity to screw up or to be super moral. For those of you that are like, God will accept me because I go to church. God will accept me because I give tithes, because I am involved in church ministries, because I am a good person. No, he didn't. He chose you apart from anything that you have done based on his desire to show love. In fact, Paul would say this in the most in the most deep terms in Romans chapter 9, speaking of Jacob and Esau, he said, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad yet, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. In other words, Peter starts this way, you're in a tension, you want to know how to navigate the tension as a believer? Start with this, God chose you. You live in Pontus, in Bithynia, in Rome, in Santa Barbara, in Los Angeles, in New York City, in Chicago, in Oxnard. I don't care where it is. God chose you. You're not just there. You are identified as God's chosen person. You are in his family, and nothing will change that about you. Your identity, first and foremost, is as a son or daughter of God. And you are that by adoption. Having done nothing to deserve it, he looked at you and he chose you simply because he loves you. You know why that is beautiful? It's beautiful because from this point on, when you make mistakes, you will still be chosen. He will never reject you, as we often reject one another when we mess up. He'll never reject you because of your mistakes. That's why Paul said in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. Number one, here's the reason why you can navigate the tension. You've been chosen by God. Number two, he says, you've been chosen in the sanctification of the Spirit. Ooh, this is good. Sanctification is another word for being set apart, meaning the Spirit God didn't just choose you to be his. His Holy Spirit then set you apart to be distinct. So now, think of this. You live in Santa Barbara. You are sent there. You have this sense of sentness. You belong here or wherever it is that you are, uh, currently live. You have this uh, calling by God. You are called his own. You are sent to be present in wherever uh, environment you are called. And yet you are simultaneously called to be distinct from that place. Why? Because you don't belong there. <laughs> you're a citizen of heaven. And yet you're called to Santa Barbara. You're called to your city to live in a distinct fashion. 
not to get absorbed by the values of the surrounding society and culture. You're supposed to look different. What if Christians looked different? I don't mean holier than thou and self-righteously different. I just mean different. What if we had a way of life that expressed, even without words involved, that we found inner peace and life and comfort and security in something that cannot be purchased? I think that would change your neighbor's view? I think that would have an impact on the people around you? God didn't choose you for your own independence and autonomy. He chose you to belong and participate in his mission in this world. Miroslav Volf, in a pretty lengthy uh, quote, Croatian theologian, puts it this way. I love it, so I'm just going to include the whole thing. This is powerful. And he says, Notice the significance of the new birth for Christian social identity. Christians don't come into their social world from outside seeking either to accommodate to their new home, like second generation immigrants might, nor do they shape their surroundings into the image of the one that they left behind, like colonizers would, nor do they establish a little haven in the strange new world reminiscent of the old, as resident aliens would. Christians are not outsiders who either seek to become insiders or maintain strenuously the status of outsiders. Christians are the insiders. They're the Santa Barbara locals who have diverted from their culture by being born again. They are by definition those who are not what they used to be. Those who do not live like they used to live. Christian difference is therefore not an insertion of something new into the old from the outside, but a bursting forth of the new precisely within the proper space of the old. You are here because God's kingdom is invading the city, and he invades the city through his people. You belong here, you're chosen by God, and you are called to be distinct from the way that other people live who have not been introduced to the kingdom. You are sent, but you are also to be set apart. To be present in this city, but distinctly different in the things that you value. The third thing. First, you're chosen by God. The second, you're set apart by the Spirit. Third, for the purpose of obedience to Jesus. Or specifically, for obedience to Jesus Christ for the sprinkling with his blood. This phrase comes from a passage in Exodus, this combination of these two things, sprinkled with blood, obedience to Jesus. It's not a random arrangement, uh, but it comes from Exodus 24 where God is entering into a relationship with his people in what, what we call the, the uh, covenant with Moses where he gives the law. And he essentially does this. He, they, kill, they offer a sacrifice, they sprinkle the blood, and then God, through Moses, gives uh, what we all know as the Ten Commandments. And Moses is reading these commandments, and the people respond by saying, all of these things we will do. You know what's happening right there is God is, for the first time, entering into a particular type of covenant relationship with his people. He's not just giving them a list of things to do and not do because he's an arbitrary uh, a stickler who likes to ruin people's fun. He is, if I can put it this way, saying to the people of Israel, hey, I just delivered you from slavery. Remember your old life, how awful that was? I brought you out. Yep. 
just like he brought some of you out of a life of slavery. And then what does God do when he redeems people from slavery? He says, hey, this is how it's going to work. I want to be with you, and you want to be with me, so here is the best way for that to work out. If you live this way, if you engage in these things, you will experience my presence. You will experience the best that I have for you. You will have a taste of the kingdom and what human life was supposed to look like. Sound good? People of Israel, yeah, we're going to do it all because we're awesome. And they fail miserably, right? The law. Paul tells us that the law, the intention of the law was not to make us holy. It was to show us that we are not holy. That God deeply wants a relationship with us, but because of our sin, we push him aside. The law was there to show us that we have need for that gap to be closed. And so strung throughout the Old Testament is a promise that a better covenant would come. Not one in which God screams down at you, do this right, and do this right, and do that right, and stop doing this, and do this, and here's thousands of other things that you need to do just to be in my presence. And by the way, you can't. Ha <laughs> ha. That's not God's heart. He's showing this to bring us close to a Savior. For example, in Ezekiel chapter 11, verse 19 through 20, we see a glimpse of what this new covenant would be like when God said, I will one day give them one heart and a new spirit, bless you, I will put within them and I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. This is all metaphorical. I will change them on the inside that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them, and they shall be my people, and I shall be their God. What is God alluding to? He's saying, hey, there will come a day where I will not shout to you what life is supposed to look like, which is impossible for you to carry out because you're not God. There's coming a time where I reach into the human person's heart and I change it from the inside out to the effect that you will desire holiness. You will desire my kingdom. You will want to be with me and my Holy Spirit will enable that to happen and then you will know what it's like to be my people and I will be your God. There is coming a day where that happens. And when Peter writes his letter to these worried, disenfranchised refugees and exiles who are trying so hard to follow Jesus but are, are just, uh, just going back and forth, Should I, can I do this? Can I make this? This is so hard. I want to give up. He uses the same phrase that was key to the Mosaic Covenant. He uses sprinkled with blood and uh, able to, uh, the ability to uh, uh, obey Christ. It would have launched into their memory. They would have understood. He's referring to the covenant. He's referring to God's ability to make us like him. Peter, if I could rephrase everything he said up until this point. For you, he would say something maybe like this. You're here in Santa Barbara and you live wherever it is that you live because God chose you. He chose you because he loves you. And he set you apart in distinction from the rest of Santa Barbara by his Holy Spirit to be in a covenant relationship with Jesus, learning to do all that he commanded. And in doing so, to offer to everyone around you a better way to live. In doing so, Peter was showing us the beauty and the cost of following Jesus. That, yeah, you'll probably suffer along the way. It's going to cost you something. 
But the beauty is you will always belong to Christ and he will make sure that you become what he intended you to become. Why should we go through 1 Peter as a church? Because you're gonna experience tension. And it might be big tension, it might be small tension. It might be difficulty, it might be relational uh, conflict, it might be ostracism, it might be mistreatment, it might be unfairness, it might be full-blown injustice. But whatever it is, you're gonna experience conflict and tension following Jesus in this city. And we're gonna go through this book because it's going to continually remind you, you belong to God, and the fullness of God's love and power and purpose has come upon you, and you're gonna make it. So stand up and charge. As we go through this, and starting this morning, let's aim to recapture a sense of our sentness to our city. And I want you to do that. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up as we move into a time of worship through singing. I want you to do this in a particular way. As we sing, I want you in the quietness of your heart to ask this question of God, if you dare. Lord, why am I here? If you're visiting, you're not, you're, you don't live in Santa Barbara, you're from somewhere else, wherever that is, ask the Lord this morning, why do you have me there? Maybe the first, your first inclination is something like, well, because I go to college. Well, because I grew up here. Well, because the job market is such and such, or because I have a place, or because the beach. could be a variety of reasons. I want you to go deeper than that. God, why do you have me here? It's more than just living from paycheck to paycheck. There's a sovereign, kingdom-expanding, powerful, wonderful God who wants to renew the cosmos and he wants to do it through your life. I dare you to ask him today, why do you have me here? Let's recapture a sense of our sentness, but let's also recapture a sense of our set-apartness. That as much as we love the city of Santa Barbara, we are in very many ways so unlike it. And I don't mean that in a self-righteous way, I mean, we belong somewhere else. And if we truly value and love Jesus Christ, we will truly desire for that set-apartness to be evident. I would hate, personally speaking, to get through my whole life living in this beautiful, wonderful town. Living my whole life and dying and for Santa Barbara to have never known that I existed. Or even worse, to have known that I existed for all the wrong reasons. Chasing money and fame, leisure and comforts. And I would hope that for all of us, we would say, if we're going to be here, if God has blessed us so much that we get to stay here even for a little while, let's make it count. God, renew us a sense of sentness, but also renew in us a sense of set-apartness, that we truly do not belong to this world. We belong to Christ, and he is in the business of making us more like him. Heavenly Father, as we worship, I pray that you would give us a new commitment, yes, to the good of our society and our culture and our neighbor, but also a deep, unequivocal allegiance to our Lord and Jesus Christ. 
We have many allegiances to our family, to our jobs, government, recreation, hobbies. We have so many allegiances. Those are all fine, Lord. You've given us those blessings, those responsibilities and obligations. But God, I pray for this church right now, and maybe for the first time, that you would give us now a new allegiance, a deep change in allegiance that surpasses all others. Christ, as we sing to you, may it all start with your face shining in this place in a saving way that as Paul said, as a light shines into the darkness, so God has caused a light to shine into your heart, revealing the light of the glory of the knowledge of Christ. God, shine that light into our heart as we sing about you and show us the beauty and glory of Christ, that we would find you so alluring and so attractive and so beautiful and so desirable and so valuable that we would be willing to give everything up, even the things that the world would offer us to entice us in order to be with you. Thank you that you are already with us now. We desire to marinate in your presence as you begin to form us for your glory in Jesus' name.